This is Graphic Novel TK, your podcast guide to comic book publishing. Hey, this is Allison. A uh, couple notes really quick before we get started with this week's episode. One, when we recorded this, Gina had a very bad cold, and I realized while I was editing it that it occasionally sounds like she is bereft, but in fact, she's fine. Illness is attempting to destroy her. The other one is that we mispronounced uh, our guest's name when we introduced her. This week, we are talking to the fantastic Bernadette Baker Bachman, who is a literary agent. Apologies for mispronouncing her name in the actual episode. If you meet her at a convention, please say Bachman and not Bauman. Don't be us. Anyway, enjoy the rest of the episode. Okay, uh, I'm Gina Gagliano. And I'm Allison Wilgus. This is Graphic Novel TK. Today, we'll be talking about literary agents, who they are, what their job is, and why it's useful to have one or not to have one. We have a fantastic guest today, Bernadette Baker Bauman, who will be talking about her career as an agent and how she works with the authors and publishers that she works with. Hi, Bernadette. Hello. Thanks for having me. Thanks for joining us. Can you get us started off by talking a little about who are you and what your background is? Absolutely. I am an agent at Victoria Sanders and Associates. I've been an agent here for seven years. And prior to joining Victoria Sanders and Associates, I had my own agency called Baker's Mark Literary Agency that was based in Portland, Oregon. As it relates to comics, you know, I started agenting at a time when commercial publishers were starting to notice and desire comics a little bit more than they had previously. There were books like Mouse that were part of the public discourse and Persepolis and Blankets, which was being shelved in the memoir section instead of the graphic novel section. And publishers were saying, you know, that they were interested in in comics in a new way. And I was sort of uniquely positioned because I was in Portland where there was a lot of comics happening. There was a lot of creators. There was a lot of publishers. Gina, as you know, you were there as well. And um, and there was just a lot of conversations happening at that time. Um, at the same time, I was trying to establish myself as a young agent and it was just a very unique opportunity for me. So I don't agent comics exclusively, but they have been a large part of my career. And some of the clients that I've had for the longest amount of time, um, like Faith Aaron Hicks, for instance, we've worked together many years over many books and, and are building you know, our careers simultaneously. So that's me. I keep forgetting that your company was originally in Portland, actually. Yeah, it feels like a long time ago now already, but we definitely got our start there. Yeah, and I feel like it says something about how proximity to people kind of like lets you build that community and those relationships that can take you really far in life and in your career. Yeah, it's so interesting. I mean, because usually the conversation that we're having in New York publishing is, do you need to be in New York to be in New York publishing? And, and I feel like I arrive at that question at different, in different ways, depending on where I'm at in my career and, and what's happening. But certainly I think being in a, any type of group of creative people gives you a unique disposition. And I, I think that's what I had in Portland. And today the landscape's changed a lot with Image having moved there and IDW opened a branch. So it's even a more thriving city for comics people than it was before. Sure. But on the other end of that coin, you know, we represent people from around the world. And there are clients I have that I've never met face to face. I mean, we have clients literally all around the world. So on the one hand, 
being in proximity is helpful. It can be helpful, but it's not the only way. So one thing I'm really curious about, and you, you talked about this a little bit, um, but how did you get into publishing originally? Like you said that you were at a, uh, you had your own agency before this, but obviously something happened between, you know, you being a teenager and you running your own literary agency. So kind of what, what was the path you took there? Yeah, I started on the publishing side. Um, I started, my very first experience in publishing was on the, as an editorial intern, which I did at two different publishing houses. Um, my first paid job in publishing was in marketing. And I uh, did that for about five years. I, I had some really terrific mentors. I finished my undergraduate degree and went on to do my graduate degree. And after I finished my graduate degree, I had intended on going to law school. I'd been accepted to law school. I knew I wanted to stay in publishing. And instead, sort of very circuitously, I started agenting instead. And that's a, a much longer story. But I started in-house, thought I wanted to be an editorial when I was hired in marketing, found that I really loved marketing. And then agenting offered this really unique opportunity to sort of dabble in all areas, um, the business side of publishing, the editorial, the marketing, you know, the creative and the strictly business. It, it's a little bit of, of everything. And I love that. So can you take us through the process of deciding to work with an author? How do you decide to work with someone? And then like, what happens next? Yeah, comics are so interesting because if we were talking about prose, I would say that there's a very clear path. If we're talking about nonfiction, it's one path. If we're talking about fiction, it's another path. And I think comics are a little, uh, there's not necessarily one way in. And I think I learned that very early on. And I think that's partially because there are different roles in publishing. There are some people who just write. There are some people who just illustrate. There are some people who... Um, write and illustrate their own books, but maybe illustrate other for other people as well. And I think I'll probably answer this question in the most obvious way or most cliche way, which is that, you know, just like on the editorial side, when you see something and you fall in love with it and that's your first experience with it, it's sort of the start of a of a bigger relationship and a longer conversation. And, and it's very much that way on the agenting side as well. Things come to us in a variety of ways. Because I've been working in comics for a long time, a lot of my comics creators come to me through word of mouth or, or recommendations. But people also solicit me through my publisher's marketplace listing. I'll go to pitch fests or writers conferences and illustrators and writers solicit me there. So they come to me in a, in a huge variety of ways. And I feel like the, we're always starting the conversation with, do I fall in love with the material? Am I, and that's the first question I ask as an agent when I'm sort of considering if I'm the right person for something is, you know, is this something that excites me and that I'm passionate about? So what's the second question? Um, the second question is, can I sell it? And, you know, that question, usually the sort of generic way I answer that is, can I think of half a dozen editors off the top of my head without really drilling down that I think would love this material as well? It's such a business of sensibilities. You know, we're always looking for editors who share our sensibility. And there are definitely, like, for a second, publishers that are devoted to the graphic novel format. But there are publishers also who dabble. And, you know, if I were only always selling to the devoted publishers of graphic novels, it would be a very small sector of publishing. And I'm, I kind of tend to look for those things that maybe could cross over a little bit more. 
or could appeal to the the trade market, whether it be for the children's publishing side or the adult publishing side in a way that's unique. We cover this a little bit in our terminology episode. Um, and some we were talking with Callista in our editorial episode. But so how is it that authors come to you? Like, can you talk about some of the different ways and the different processes that you end up working with a cartoonist on their book? I mean, the easiest way to me and to anyone in our agency is to follow our submission guidelines. And our submission guidelines say that you should send a query and include 30 pages of your manuscript in the body of the email, which is obviously not going to work for a, a lot of cartoonists. But, you know, starting with a query letter into our submissions box, we as an agency check our submissions every single day. We respond to every single query that comes in and anything that's exciting to us gets responded to, you know, I would say on the high end within two weeks, but very, very often uh, much faster than that. For a cartoonist who's looking at those submission guidelines, they might go like, how am I going to get this person to pay attention to me? But I would just say, including some links to your material, to your website, to your portfolio, to sample pages is as good as including the material in the body of the email. And what sort of things do you want to hear about in a query letter? For me, I mean, a very well thought out query letter is about three to four paragraphs long. It contains a book concept and information about the author's platform, their bio, um, and any other relevant information that might be useful. But I, I feel like most of the cartoonists that I work with, <laughs> I'm, so, I'm sort of qualifying all of this because I feel like all of these answers are very straightforward when you're talking about prose. But when you're talking about graphic novels, there's a little more gray area because we're talking about a huge varied types of audiences. Like if you're writing a graphic novel that's a nonfiction memoir, you would approach me one way and that would follow something that's a little bit more close to a nonfiction pitch or a nonfiction query letter. Does that make sense? Mm -hmm. The other thing I would say is there's a lot of graphic novels that I've sold based on a proposal where the whole book is not written and illustrated yet. And we do put together basically a sales package to go to a publisher that ultimately sells the book. So so I might start talking to a cartoonist much earlier in the process than I would a novelist because I really couldn't talk to a novelist until they had a completed novel for me to consider in most cases. You know, a good example of this is my client, Laura Terry, who had a book uh, come out just this month called Graveyard Shakes with Scholastic. And when she came to me, she sort of came to me with like three or four really interesting illustrations and, and like a concept statement and was like, this is the book I want to draw. And I really loved her style. I really thought this story was wonderful. And so I told her what I needed in a package to pitch to publishers. And I sort of said, go off and create this proposal and then come back to me. And once I see this proposal, I'll know if I'll be able to sell it or not. And that's this part where we'll start working together. Even though I gave her feedback and said, go off and do this thing, I gave her an assignment. It wasn't until she came back to me with a project that I said, yes, okay, I love this and I can sell it that I then offered representation. So you've talked about this uh, a little bit in kind of explaining uh, the process of working with some of your authors. And again, we got into this a little bit while we were talking to Callista, for instance, but what do you see as your responsibilities uh, as an agent when you're working with your authors? If you're talking to them and they're asking you, what is working with you going to do to change my career or, or how are you going to help my book or how are you going to be dealing with me on a, 
uh, as I'm kind of moving forward with this process. How would you describe that? Well, I think the author-agent relationship is very simpatico. And the way I look at my relationship with the authors that I work with is that it's a business relationship. You know, the author is sort of managing an entire business, especially if they're a multi-book author. And I am sort of their partner on the ground in terms of, of managing the business side so that they can manage the creative side. And we do that in lockstep. We work in full transparency and we work in consultation with our clients, but we're always trying to ultimately do the same thing, which is grow their career. So do you conversely think of yourself as having responsibilities to the publisher as well? How do you work with them? Yeah, I mean, I do think the role of the agent is to be a facilitator. I feel like the publisher always has the same goal in mind as well. A publisher is not going to sign up a project that they want to see fail. A publisher wants to see all of their projects succeed. And so it's my job to, I think, facilitate the relationship between the author and the publisher. If anybody's unhappy in that relationship at any point, it's the agent's job to help navigate that. So there, I think that's a responsibility. And I think you have a responsibility to represent your client well out in the world. I think there's a lot of perception that agents sort of are out there in the world doing what they're supposed to be doing. And, and you might not hear from your agent for months. And I would say that's a rumor we're trying to dispel in the work that we're doing. You know, we work very closely with the clients that we represent. And, and it's why we have to be very selective about who we take on as a client, but we work very closely with our clients in building their career at every stage of the process. So we start the conversation at, do we love this book? But then we work with the author to put together the material to take out to a publisher. And then we take the material out to the publisher and try and sell it. And we try and sell it in a way that's to the author's benefit. And we try to get them the absolute best deal possible. And there's a lot of ways that we strategize to do that. And then once we have an offer on the table, we negotiate the best deal possible for our clients. And then we take them through the contract process. And then after that, there's still the whole process of working with the publisher. So we're with them all the way, you know, from the very, very beginning of the process to the very, very end of the process. And then hopefully at the end, you know, the author wants to do it all over again. And and then we do. Unlike with literary fiction, uh, with prose novels, many, many professional, well-regarded cartoonists like do not have agents. Like not only is self-publishing more of a thing in comics, unagented cartoonists are more of a thing uh, than they are with uh, prose authors. Uh, so if an individual cartoonist is trying to make a decision about whether or not they should be trying to find an agent before moving forward with their project, uh, what kinds of questions do you think that they should be asking themselves? Like, What do you see as a sign that maybe you should be looking into an agent in terms of their temperament or in terms of the kind of book that they're working on? Like, how should somebody make that decision, do you think, in your experience? That's a really interesting question. I mean, I've never really thought about it from that perspective. I mean, I can say there are few instances where I've felt that a writer wouldn't be better served by having an agent. But I use writer broadly. I'm obviously referring to illustrators, writers, cartoonists, anybody that I could potentially represent, I'm calling a writer. There are some instances where a client I represent will come to me with a contract from a very small press that they've gotten on their own. They've, they've nurtured that relationship that advances little or nothing. 
And in that case, I might as an agent say, you know, let me step aside on this one and I'm not going to commission you. And let me look at this agreement and just make sure you're not signing up for anything you don't want or that's going to hurt you in the future. You know, there are those instances where an agent's not necessary for the deal. But I think in terms of managing a career, I personally think I would always want to be in consultation with somebody, even if it's just at the at this sort of high level of what's my next step in my career? Are there other things I could be considering? Are there things that I'm not doing that I should be doing? And then also just representing the author's interest. You know, I think it's very, very hard for an author to have a well-nurtured creative relationship with any publisher if they're also trying to manage the business relationship, because you sort of have to approach those conversations differently. And I I always try to keep the conversation that my clients are having with their publisher creative. And I'm always trying to manage the business conversations so that those two conversations are never made muddied by the other. It's always interesting to hear different people's take on this. this is one of the reasons I wanted to ask you about this. So I appreciate you kind of getting into it a little bit. So you talked about, you know, your relationship with the publisher as a business relationship. Can you talk about how that relationship works, especially starting with the pitch? You know, you said you had this pitch from for Laura Terry for um, Graveyard Shakes, I'm assuming. What did you do then? Like, do you approach one publisher? Do you approach lots of people? Do you call them? Do you write them letters? Do you go to their office? Yeah, our process and and I would I say our pretty much our office operates this way. And our process is that, you know, once we have the material, we've worked with the writer to get the material to a place where it's ready to pitch. At that point, we put together a pitch list. And that pitch list um, will vary, you know, based on the, the material. So we don't go to the same editors for every project every time. We, we really try to pick editors that are right for the book that we're pitching. And that list may have 10 editors on it, or it may have 25 editors on it. And it really just depends on the material. When that list is ready to go, what I do is I, you know, I put together this pitch package into an email that's, that's very easy to send off, um, which can be a little bit of a logistical issue with comics, um, only because the art files can be very, very large. So that's always something that I take into consideration when I'm putting together this pitch package. But I always call the editor first, and I pitch them the story idea over the phone. I talk to them about the client. I really try to engage them in a conversation because, you know, I know, speaking of Callista, we've done a lot of books together. I know Callista to some degree, and I, I sort of have a sense for what she likes and what she's looking for and what the publisher is looking for as a whole. But I don't necessarily have a close relationship with every single editor that I'm calling. Some of them, I might have talked about this project with another colleague and they said, oh, you should send it to this editor. They'll love it. So I might be in in some ways introducing myself to the editor for the first time and trying to get a better sense of what's working for them and what's not working for them and what, you know, where they are at in, um, in terms of building their list. And I try to, to really personalize the pitch so it doesn't feel like I'm just giving some generic pitch. It feels like I'm, I'm pitching something that is right for the editor that I'm speaking to. As soon as I hang up from that phone call, I send the pitch package in an email. So it's sort of two points of contact right away. You get a phone call from me and then you get an email following up with all the materials. In that pitch package, I will build a query letter that is very similar to what an author would build when they're querying me. And in that query letter, I'll include 
information about the project and also the author. I will also ask the editor to respond to me by a, a certain date. And I'm sure editors don't love that. Uh, but I don't really want a pitch to go out into the world with an you know, indefinite deadline. I want editors to know by when I'll be hoping to hear from them. It's not a hard deadline. It's a suggestion. But I feel like it's setting an expectation because if something goes off and I don't know if and when I'm going to hear from somebody, we could. I feel like we could be waiting indefinitely. And then as an agent, it sort of gives me a, a date to follow up by. So hopefully editors read the material and fall in love with it way before my deadline and we're having conversations and closing deals. But, you know, it, it doesn't usually happen that way. I'll be honest. And usually it's really about the material goes out into the world and then editors read to it and respond to it in their own way. And if they're interested, if they're responding to it well, they'll usually write me back and say, oh, I'm loving this and I'm going to share it with my team. And here's when my editorial meeting is. And are other editors considering this? And where are you at in the process? And and then we go from there. And, and once uh, I have an offer on the table, then I'll let all the other editors who are considering it know that I have an offer on the table and what my, my strategy is for next steps. And that strategy really varies based on so many factors, like how many editors I have interested, um, what this initial offer looks like, who my sort of top pick for an editor is for the project. If the project has worldwide appeal. If the publisher is making an offer on world rights or North American rights, you know, there's like a million factors that go into that next steps question, but that's sort of our strategy for getting to the offer point. I should say there's one part I skipped, which is that after I finish my submission, I always share my submission list with my clients and I offer to share feedback um, as it comes in from editors. Some authors want to hear that and some don't. So you said you give people a deadline. Can you just give us a sense of how long that is? Like, is it usually five days? Or is it two weeks? Or is it like three months? Usually it's a month. Sometimes it's shorter. And I would say sometimes it's longer, but usually only longer if there's other factors like Book Expo America is going on or London Book Fair or something that where editors might be delayed either because their focus is going to be on something else or the team that they work with will be delayed by that thing. I feel like we hear a lot about auctions. I feel like auctions are probably the most excitingly talked about part of the book pitching situation. Can you talk about how one of those works? Yeah, how free and how frequently did this actually happen? I mean, we go through times where they're happening very frequently and times where they're infrequent. I mean, the only factor about when you go to auction is whether or not you have multiple parties interested. And sometimes editors will try to keep agents from going to auction by making what's called a preemptive offer, which is an offer that is essentially designed to make an agent not want to consider any other offers. So when we go to auction, I mean, there's, there are many ways to organize an auction. And I think it largely depends on how many editors you have interested in the property and how high the stakes are. Is there anything specific you want to know about auctions? I know literally nothing about them at all. I'm intensely curious about how they work logistically. And every different agency has their own rules, right? Or you might have different rules for different auctions that you're doing? Well, yeah. I mean, there's no one way to set an auction. Um, sometimes we'll write to all of the interested editors and say, we're going to auction we want your best and final offer by this date and time and reserve the author's right to make the final decision whether or not your offer is the highest. 
And that's one type of auction. Another type of auction is to say, we're going to go out for auction. We need your first offer by this date and time. The best offers, the best two, three, however many offers will go to a second round or a third round until we get down to the best two offers, in which case we'll be down to our last two contenders and the best offer will win. But, you know, it's it's all based on the specific logistics of who's interested in, in going to auction. Does that make sense? Yeah, this is so interesting to me because I literally was like, is it is it like Christie's? Like, is there <laughs> is there a man yelling or people holding up paddles? Like, so I, I appreciate you explaining this to me as I... Yeah, the agent sets the rules for the auction. And sometimes... Um, editors will make requests. They'll say, you know, I don't want to do a best and final offer on the first round. Can we do multiple rounds? And the agent can say yes or no. And it, it's, I think, you know, a lot of agents and editors have very collegial relationships. And, you know, some of those decisions are, are made based off of requests in the moment. Okay, so you've done your super exciting auction. Can you talk about the next part? Uh, like the the contract negotiations. And also the difference between the initial offer and the contract, because I think that sometimes people conflate that. Like what's included in an offer and then how do you move from that to actually negotiating a contract? I mean, the offer usually happens over the phone, but then that's followed up with an editor sending the deal terms in an email. And, and we might go back and forth multiple times and say, you know, yes to this, no to that. The editors and agents will push back and forth. And that's pretty high level. I mean, it's it's the advance, it's the payouts, it's often the royalties, it's often the subsidiary rights, but it's not the minutiae. And usually the minutiae is dealt with in the contract negotiation stage. And uh, each, each agency has our boilerplate as well. So usually we're starting from a place where we've already negotiated the high level terms and now we're doing the deal specific terms. Can you give us some examples of high level terms? Like probably like the advance is one of them, the rights. Mm-hmm. Like you mentioned what? a couple of them. Yeah. Is there anything? I mean, there's the advance, there's rights and royalties. So is mm-hmm. that usually all that uh, that initial offer is going to include or does it depend on the individual book? You know, it usually depends on the publisher. Um, Some publishers have very elaborate deal memo forms that they use, and some deal memos are just very basic, and it really really depends on the publisher. I mean, I think it it lies on the shoulders of the agent to ask for anything that they know they need up front. And so here's another thing. Um, The the issues of auctions aside, presumably sometimes you're working with an author and they get more than one offer, like these high-level terms. Uh, if you're sitting down and, and talking with an author about the different uh, offers on the table and which one they should take, like, how, what are you considering when you're giving them advice about what you think that they should do? Because I think that there's this idea that you should always just go for the most money or you should always just go for the best rights. But it's uh, are there any other factors that you're kind of trying to talk through with people as they're deciding what offer is the best one for them? Oh, absolutely. I mean, what we will do in the case of an auction is put all of the offers into a grid so we can really look at them side by side, apples to apples. This publisher is offering this advance. This publisher is offering this advance. This publisher is offering a third advance. And we also ask the publishers to include information about what they will offer for marketing. You know, what, what do they plan to do to help differentiate this book? And the publisher's response to that question you know, speaks directly, I think, to the author um, and, and really can help make the decision. If you have two offers that are exactly the same, the publisher that answers the question about how will I 
publicize and market this book robustly has a leg up over the publisher that doesn't answer that question well. Do you find yourself also thinking about uh, your history of working with different publishers or the rest of their catalog or other factors about like what the best home for the book is going to be? Yeah, I, I definitely do. I think that we're always looking for long-term relationship. Yes, I do have authors who have published only one book, but a lot of the authors that we work with are trying to be career writers and they do plan on publishing multiple books. So we are looking for some place that will be good for them for not just one book, but for their career. And that's not to say we don't ever move authors. Of course we do, but we always start the conversation with that perspective in mind. So Yes, you know, how well they've published other authors of ours is a factor um, to some degree. It's not the only factor, um, but it certainly is a factor. How well they've published other similar titles is a factor. Will this book stand out on their list? Yeah, absolutely, that's a factor. If one publisher has 50 books every season and another publisher has 12 books every season, that might be a factor. I mean, it's it's very hard to say in the abstract because there's so many factors. There's so many factors. And it's the one of the things that your the agent does is help the author to figure out, you know, what the important factors are and, and help make the decision. You know, and ultimately the agent can't make the decision for the client. The agent can only advise and, and give their best advice. And it's ultimately up to the client to choose. You know, I have had situations where I've I've been in an auction and I've said, you know, my gut says go with this person. And the client has said, no, I prefer this editor. And ultimately, that's, that's what wins out. Um, but yes, those factors are meaningful. I mean, I know I've had conversations with uh, other cartoonists in the past about, you know, these kinds of decisions. And one thing that comes out a lot is, I'd rather take a low advance from a publisher that I think is going to take care of me than a high advance from one where I'm just going to be another book in their catalog. It's always a very difficult decision with these kinds of things. Well, you know, the the alternative argument to that is a publisher who spends more money on your book is going to put more effort into selling your book. See, I love this. This is why I'm glad we're talking to you about this. Um, I feel badly that we're asking you about this because, of course, you know, we're here because we love comics. And I feel like every conversation about comics and business ends up coming down to this. But a thing that I get asked a lot when I'm talking to people about agents is how does an agent help you out if, for instance, somebody wants to talk to you about movies or television or other kind of uh, optioning of their work? So how do you work with authors in those circumstances? Do you handle that yourself? Do you work with other agents to do that? How does that work? We represent our clients across the board. So when it comes to film and television rights, we do almost always, not exclusively, but almost always use a co-agent on the film side, somebody who's an expert in that area. When it comes to negotiating film and television contracts, we engage a entertainment attorney. There is a structure to that business relationship. And, and basically, without going into huge amounts of details and boring you, essentially, we split our commission with our film co-agents. So the author is not paying more for the services of a film and television agent, but they're getting an expert level of service for the same price, essentially. We do not work with one agent exclusively on the film and television side. We work with multiple different agents across various agencies. And that just like us falling in love with the book, the film and television agent we work with has to fall in love with the book too, because it's very difficult to sell something you're not in love with. Um, so that's something that's really important to us. Same thing with merchandising and same thing with foreign rights. You know, there are 
some publishers whose strategy is to manage the foreign rights on their own. And in the cases where the publisher makes an offer for worldwide rights, we entertain those offers as long as the publisher has a good track record there and is intending to really exploit those rights. We also always try to put in reversions for those rights. So if the publisher is not successful in placing those rights, despite their best intentions, we have the opportunity to do so ourselves. And in a lot of foreign territories, especially the non-English speaking territories, we do use co-agents as well. And it's the same situation where where we split our commission with those co-agents. So after you've got the whole pitch process, the contract together, you have the offer and you have the, the contract signed, what are the other points in the book publishing process that you would be kind of called in either by the author or the publisher to help out with something or to give your advice or to be an active participant? Usually, I mean, every agent's different and every agent has a different style and strategy and approach. For me, you know, once the deal is done and the creative conversation is happening, I like to be copied on the conversation so that I'm in the know, so that I'm aware of of where my client's at in the process and where the project's at and all of the benchmarks and deadlines that, you know, will be um, rolling out over the course of publication and and leading up to the final pub date. Um, You know, I always make myself available to the publisher and to the client if any bumps come up and if they need my assistance in any way, I always make myself available. But unless called upon, I I usually stay pretty quiet and out of the way and just um, try to make sure that things are moving along at the pace that they're supposed to be moving along. Um, I think one of the hardest things is there are some clients and some publishers who just, despite your as many times as you may ask, don't include you on correspondence. And it's only when something starts to go wrong that you start hearing from them. And that's what we really try to avoid. We try to make sure things are going smooth for everybody throughout the entire process. Um, Usually we're consulted on the jacket art, you know, the jacket copy, catalog copy, things like that, you know, where, you know, the publisher will usually come to me first and say, we have these assets that are ready to share can we have your feedback? And at that time, if I think that something is really off track, I will give my feedback before sharing it with the client. If everything's on track, whether it needs to be adjusted or is terrific and perfect and ready to go, you know, I'll usually be the person to loop the author in and we'll have a conversation about it. And then I'll go back to the publisher with our feedback. And then, you know, the editorial conversation pretty much happens between the author and the editor. I might be called in for any variety of things, um, depending on, on the book. Can you give us some examples? I feel like you would have more examples than me, Gina. (laughs) Um, (laughs) um, what are some good examples? Um, I'll usually ask for a marketing and publicity update. If my client has concerns or is unhappy with that for any reason, I would be the person to manage those conversations. I don't know. Like what about if like a, an editor is like giving feedback back or if an author is worried they're going to miss their deadline? Yeah. I mean, if an author is worried they're going to miss their deadline, they absolutely, this is, I mean, this is one of those times where it's really, I feel like beneficial to have an agent because it's very hard to be in that creative space and to be having to also negotiate with your editor for more time if that's what you need. And I think an agent can look at it at that conversation from a very technical point of view and 
and help the creator problem solve you know, how much time do you need in order to get this project done realistically? And then have that conversation with the publisher and, and navigate whatever complexities may be associated with that as well. This is reminding me of some emails I need to be CCing my agent on. I'm going to go do that as soon as I get off of this interview. Like, oh, wait, Eddie probably wants to know about that. Anyway, um, <laughs> backing up a little bit, um, talking about some of the kinds of problems that people can get into by signing a bad contract, for instance, like things that you try to make sure that you talked earlier about how sometimes you want to look at contracts that your clients might have, even if you're not going to represent them, just to make sure they're not signing something they're going to regret. And I know that sometimes you come on very early on in the process, but sometimes maybe you're coming on with a client who has done a lot of work before you started working with them. Have you ever been in a situation where you're having to do kind of cleanup or damage control on contracts or business that's already happened before you came on with a client? Uh, and if so, kind of how do you navigate that kind of thing? Oh, absolutely. I mean, I think that I was dealing with an issue related to this this week where not my client, but another client on the project didn't have her agent at the time of signing the agreement and her agent is now being brought in to deal with an issue. And I think that's part, that's part of the benefit of having an agent and it's part of the job of being an agent is to, is to help your authors manage those things. I I don't even want to say they're missteps or mistakes. You know, sometimes things come up that are not the fault of the creator and not the fault of the publisher's contract being bad and bad and not the fault of any ill will or bad intentions. It's just, you know, this is a, this is a business that, you know, has deadlines and has benchmarks and sometimes those benchmarks can't be met. And I feel like it is the job of the agent to help the creator navigate those and, and they can be varied and they can be vast. I've had to ask for rights back on projects that, you know, clients sold before I represented them. I've had to, um, go back in and try to renegotiate contracts that I didn't feel were up to a standard, um, for my clients. I've had to, um, you know, I've had to enter conversations that I previously was not a part of either because I didn't represent the person at the time of that conversation happening or something happened without me knowing about it. But I just feel like that's, that's part of the business of being an agent. I mean, the, the, if I could give one bit of advice to any author or cartoonist or illustrator who's agented, I would just say like, call your agent, (laughs) keep your agent looped. The, your agent will help you navigate so much more than you um, maybe give them credit for or anticipate. I mean, I will say the clients that I'm most successful with, we talk regularly. We talk through big things and little things. They, you know, are in very frequent communication and, and that communication is reciprocal where it's a, it's a conversation that's ongoing um, so yes, I think that's one of the benefits of having an agent is to help clean up the messes, whether the mess is your fault or not your fault. Of course, part of the reason that we're doing this podcast is also because publishing is a giant, confusing industry. And I definitely have more than one friend who's ended up in a bad situation, not because they're stupid or necessarily, uh, we're even being, uh, particularly irresponsible, but just, they were very aggressively being taken advantage of and they didn't have anybody to, uh, help them recognize just how bad of a situation they were getting into. Sure. I mean, I think as a, from a creative side, you want to feel that anybody who's approaching you to do business with you comes from 
a place of goodwill. And I think sort of on a generic level, yes, that's true. But, but publishers are business people and a publisher's contract is always going to benefit the publisher more than it benefits the writer or the creator. And it's the creator's job to have representation, to push back in the areas where they can and, and to negotiate the best deal possible. The, the best deals are deals that everybody benefits from and that everybody feels good about and everybody, you know, everybody wins at. Can you just talk about, you've been talking about contracts a whole lot. I feel like that's something that we think about when we talk about agents. Is mm-hmm. that, do you think like 20% of your job or is it 50% of your job to be negotiating contracts? I would say it's not 50% of my job. I would say it's hard to say exactly how much of my job it is. I mean, for each new deal, there's a new contract. But if I'm doing my fourth deal for Faith at first second, then the amount of time I'm spending negotiating her contract is much less because I've already negotiated four times for her. If I'm negotiating for a client for the very first time, then I'm spending much more time on that negotiation and, and getting the contract to a place where I want it to be. Contracts are, I was just talking about contracts in my office today. I mean, contra- I love, I love negotiating contracts. It's, it sounds a little bit silly to say that, but it's really important that the contract is right and that, you know, it's also right for the particular client and the particular project. So contracts are really important, but I would say they're not, I mean, they don't take up a huge amount of my, if I were to sort of calculate how much time I spend on a year in a year working on contracts, I would say maybe 20% and sometimes more and sometimes less depending on, on the client. So you've mentioned a few times that comics and prose are different. You talked a little about file size and you talked about the pitch materials being different between comics and prose. But do you find that there's any other points of the process that are different between the two forms? Yeah, I mean, with with prose, with with fiction, you really need to, in most cases, have a finished manuscript to try and sell to a publisher. It's it's infrequent that you sell fiction based on a partial manuscript. With comics, you might be trying to sell a script. You might be trying to sell something that's even less form than a script. If I'm trying to sell something that's by a writer illustrator that's incomplete, then I usually am selling something that looks more like a proposal. And that proposal, I would say the closest thing it mirrors on the prose side is a nonfiction proposal in that it, it has things like a book concept, uh, author bio, um, an outline of the story. Um, but it might not, it, it might have sample chapters or a sample chapter, but it wouldn't necessarily have the whole completed book. And that that's intended to try and paint a picture for the publisher about what, you know, this project is aspiring to be. And it's, it's difficult to sell something on a proposal, but it can be done. And, and I've done it it would be harder for me to, to do that on the fiction side, but it's very common for that to happen um, with nonfiction. What are some of the other differences? Sometimes I am just trying to sell the artist and I'm, so I'm not even sort of showing material that's related to a specific project, but I'm just trying to showcase the artists. Um, and some of the ways I do that are using the, what the artist already has on their website or out in the world. But sometimes I'm really helping the artists put together their portfolios as well. Is, are there any other differences with like the timeline or the editorial process or any of the rest of the, the stages? 
Yeah, absolutely. I mean, in comics on the editorial side, usually what editors are expecting to see is work in stages. So oftentimes that's a script and then thumbnails and then pencils and then inks and then completed pages and then adding the lettering and uh, all at the end. On the prose side, you don't really work in stages like that. It's, it is a much more of a, a conversation that it is a back and forth, but it's happening with much bigger chunks of work, completed pieces of work. You know, uh, uh, when the contract's done on the prose side, usually there's a due date to the publisher and then that's really it. And there might be a, a editorial back and forth that happens before that due date or that conversation might happen at the time that the book is turned in. I feel like on the comic side, that editorial process is happening in a much more, at a much closer level. To me, it feels like the editorial and the creation is happening in real time together often. Yeah. And a lot of times those thumbnails, pencils, inks, et cetera, dates would be negotiated in, in the contract too, even if it's just one person who's doing all of them. That's right. So you touched on this briefly about how sometimes you're just representing an artist, for instance, uh, and trying to find work for them. Um, And I'm actually really curious about this because I feel like this has actually changed a lot over time. Like since, for instance, when I was last trying to pitch something, even just a few years ago, uh, how do you feel like the landscape is right now about cartoonists who are doing both writing and drawing versus an artist working on their own versus a writer working on their own versus an existing creative team kind of what uh, do you feel like is the reception for those different kinds of, uh, I don't know, packages of talent, so to speak, like how successful are, for instance, just solo comics writers and solo artists and whatnot kind of at this point and finding work for themselves? For me, I feel like it's gotten harder to pitch just a script for a graphic novel. It's not impossible by any stretch, but it, it's to me, somehow the landscape there has, has gotten more difficult. I would almost rather try to put together a team on my own before going out with something or try to find a way to package a writer, try to help them establish a, a platform um, before going out with a script you know, if it, if it were a debut writer, somebody who's obviously established doesn't have that same problem, that same dilemma. But I do feel like there's a different approach with, Allison, something you just said kind of stood out to me. There, When you're an illustrator who's trying to be a cartoonist, but also maybe an illustrator for children's picture books or across other categories, I feel like as an agent, you're really trying to get the attention of, a, of two very different types of people in the industry looking for, for very specific types of material. And I feel like you have to be really broad in your approach, I feel like, in that way. But I also feel like comics are traditionally, there's a lot of different ways to enter. There's not just one door. So you kind of have to be flexible and look at each each project individually and make a decision in the moment. Is this something that You know, I dealt with this recently. I had a submission come to me that was really promising. It was very smart and funny. The art was terrific, but it's very of this moment. It's a very timely piece. And the book is not completed yet. And I, knowing how long it takes for a graphic novel to be completed, you know, they had about 20 pages of a 150 page book completed. So I'm sort of doing the timeline in my head going, okay, it's going to be another year before the art's complete. 
and it's going to be another year before that book can come out. Is this topic going to be as timely in two years from now? That's a real challenge for me to try to think about as an agent. I know editors are going to ask me about that. Can I overcome that question? And ultimately, you know, I felt like, no, I could get behind this book if there was a faster way for it to be completed. But it would be hard for me to try to convince editors that this will be timely in two years. So, you know, I think you have to look at each book and its challenges sort of on an individual basis and try and troubleshoot like in the in the moment. I mean, that actually brings me to another question I wanted to ask you, which is obviously sometimes clients are coming to you with like, I want to pitch this book, help me pitch this specific book. But then I know, you know, your work with Faith, for instance, she might be like, well, I have these three projects I'm kind of working on and kind of interested in. Uh, how much of a conversation are you having with the people that you're working with about where, you know, for instance, if I have three different ideas for a book that I might want to pitch and I'm talking to you about it, like how much are you involved in that decision-making process and how do you help people make that kind of decision? Yeah, I would say I'm very involved in that conversation because, you know, we're trying to make a a career decision for you and we're trying to decide what are you going to have the most success with? So if you had three ideas, Allison, I would say, can you write me one paragraph about each of those ideas, send them to me, and then we'll set up a phone call. And that will give me a chance to sort of have a little bit of exposure to your ideas. Think about which ones are the most marketable, which ones are the most timely, or which one, which one stands out to me the most. And then when you and I have a conversation, I will give you that feedback. But it'll, my first question to you will most likely be, which of these are you most passionate about? And and sometimes the, the, the passionate question is the answer. And sometimes, you know, answering a few questions, that is the answer. I do have this conversation with clients a lot about what's my next thing. But we also have the conversation like, I had this opportunity come to me and should I take this opportunity? And usually the question or the conversation that I have with the creator is, is this something that you're passionate about? And is it something that's going to make you money? And if the answer to those questions is no, then usually the answer to should I take this opportunity on is no. If the answer to one of those questions is yes, then it's worth a longer conversation to to try and decide if this opportunity should be the next project. They just announced uh, Faith's uh, Avatar series that she's going to be doing. And I can imagine you had a lot of conversations along those lines while she was making that decision. (laughs) Sure. And, you know, also with authors that I've done multiple books with, there comes a time, I think, where you have to say yes to everything because you're getting established. And then there comes a time where you have to start saying no, because you only have so many hours in a day and you can no longer say yes to everything. And it's at that transition point that I think it's especially helpful to have an agent to talk through those decisions with, because you don't want to make the wrong decision. You don't want to make the decision in a vacuum and and you want to sort of be choosing the things that are going to serve you the most. Do you have any advice for people who are looking for their first agent? What is the thing that you would want them to feel when they talk to the agent that would make them pick that person as their agent? I feel like you want to pick an agent based on a rapport that you have with the agent. Your agent's a really important person in your career. And I feel like you have to trust the agent. You have to feel like they have your best interest at heart. You have to feel like they're a fan of your work and they understand what you're trying to do. It's this sort of, I feel like if I were a creator, I would want to work with an agent who 
truly appreciated my work and then had a reputation of being a good agent. Can you give us an approximate of how many clients you have? Like how many people are you working with? So I've been agenting since 2005, so 12 years. And I would say if I sort of count all of my clients, I probably have maybe 50, but not 50 active clients for sure. And so Victoria, my boss, who's had her own agency for 30 years, has hundreds of clients, but probably has dozens of active clients. I probably have maybe 20 really active clients at this moment in time. That's fewer than I would have thought, actually. Yeah, it's it's not something I really keep track of by way of, you know, having a tally of who's really active. I'm just sort of doing a quick calculation in my head of like, how many files have I touched the past month? Probably 20. So the same way that people can pitch to a publisher and the publisher could be like, we like you, but we have too many books. People can pitch to an agent and an agent can say, well, I like you, but I have too many clients that I have right now to take you on. Sure. Absolutely. I mean, I think it's very, very hard for agents to say no to something that they're excited about. I think there's this sort of space of being on the fence as an agent where you know, something's going to require a certain amount of time and energy to develop and you know, for me, I only want to take on things that I have the time and energy to develop. So I might say to an author, I really love what you're doing. And I think it's really smart. And, you know, these are all of the qualities that I like about it. I don't think it's quite ready to go yet. And, and here's my feedback about why. And maybe the, this is my shortcoming and, and uh, another agent will feel differently. But if not, if you, if these notes, resonate with you and you feel like you want to go develop the material more and come back to me, I would really be happy to reconsider it. It's not something I can take on at this time, but it's something I might consider in the future. I would say I'd be pretty hard pressed to think about something coming to me and and me saying, oh, this is amazing and absolutely needs no work and ready to go out to editors and me saying, oh, I have too many books. If something needs development before it can go out to an editor, that's usually the time where I'll say, I'm, I might not have the time and energy to develop this at this stage. So we asked you what advice you would give to people who are looking for an agent. What advice would you give to someone who is looking to do what you did and be an agent? If I could give my 25-year-old self some advice, I would say go work for an agency, whether it be a big agency or a small agency, sit in that assistant desk see what it's really like and make a decision about if this is right for you. I mean, the great thing about being in the agent's chair, whether you're the agent or just working in, you know, under another agent is that you get to see and experience a lot of different types of things. You're really looking at things editorially. You're looking at things from a marketing perspective. You're learning contracts. You know, it's a varied position. You get to touch a lot of different things. So I would say, I don't know how hard it would be for somebody to make a career change mid-career and become agent. I know people do that. If somebody were to say, I'm a cartoonist and I want an agent for other cartoonists, I would say, go work for an agency. Start at the bottom and build up a list of talent. Bernadette, thank you so much for talking to us today. We really appreciate it. Thank you both. I really appreciate it. Are you currently taking on clients right now? I am. So if people want to find out more about your agency or uh, get in touch with you online, where is it that they can find you on the internet? 
We are at victoriasanders.com. That has all the information about our agency along with our submission guidelines and a whole lot of our clients. So anybody can see what else we've done and see if we might be a good match. Okay, up next on Graphic Novel TK, we're going to be talking about publishers. Who are they and what do they do? They are a mystery. We'll be having Annie Koyama from the fantastic Koyama Press come talk to us about that. See you soon. Graphic Novel TK is co-produced by Gina Gagliano and Allison Wilgus and is brought to you by The Beat. You can find our show notes along with other comics news and podcasts at comicsbeat.com. Our podcast graphics were created by Shivana Sokdeo. Our theme music is by Poddington Bear. You can follow us on Twitter at GraphicNovelTK or email us at GraphicNovelTK at gmail.com.